0: One of the beloved works of C.S. Lewis that he wrote in the 1900s uh, was his his famous uh, fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia. In uh, the book called The Horse and His Boy, there is a scene where the character Shasta encounters the lion named Aslan for the first time. The text reads like this. Being very tired and having nothing inside him, Shasta felt so sorry for himself. The tears rolled down his cheeks. And what put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he really had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. And he said, Who are you? Barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak said the thing and its voice was not loud but very large and deep I can't see you at all said Shasta but the lion told him tell me all your sorrows tell me your sorrows what an invitation the character Shasta is fiction but I have good news for you this morning the invitation is real The invitation is real. The psalmists know it is real. The psalmists pour out their hurting hearts to God across this book that is beloved by the church of Christ. In a world full of hardship and pain, the psalmists know that God says to them, tell me all your sorrows. Circumstances ebb and flow too much for us to hope in them. Our hope must be in God alone. Money and human approval are here today and gone tomorrow. Our hope can't be in them. But the faithfulness of God, His steadfast love, those are realities to build a life on. Those are realities to orient your heart to and anchor it there. Psalm 6 is this kind of outpouring from the heart of the psalmist. David, the language in the psalm can classify this as a lament. We might not be surprised that given the fact that the psalmists write what they do in a fallen world, that most of the psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms of lament. There is celebration, there is rejoicing, there is remembrance and historical accounting, but most of the psalms are lament because life is hard and circumstances are beyond our control. And God says to us, tell me all your sorrows. For He is with us and for us. This is written to the choir master with stringed instruments because it turns out that what David experienced isn't something that no one else could relate to. No one could read Psalm 6 and say, Oh, I'm sorry, I have no idea what in the world this is like. Difficulties, hardships, sorrows in a fallen world. That might apply to somebody. But not to me. Well, no, of course, we would not see it that way. To the choir master with stringed instruments helps us to remember that this was a song to be remembered and sung together that corporately the people of God would take comfort in this psalm of David because the experiences of David are not unique to him in verses 1 to 3 let's look together at his plea for graciousness instead of judgment he pleads for graciousness instead of judgment O Lord rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath Be gracious to me. David knows what he might deserve. It is clear that if God were to treat David according to David's wickedness and according to David's sins, then there is no mercy there. There is instead judgment. There is no earned grace. There is no deserved favor. David has some sense of his situation as not being without maybe his own sowing. He is concerned about the discipline and judgment of God. And so he prays that rather than experiencing the discipline and judgment of God, God would be gracious to him. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. If we were to understand that before a holy God with we ourselves as sinners unrighteous and guilty and full of shame and wickedness in our hearts and in our words and actions. We are those who deserve the righteous and holy anger of God. And he says, Lord, would you not turn to me with that? Don't rebuke me in your anger. Discipline me in your wrath. David may be in a circumstance that's not entirely the result of what others have done, but he seems to be praying here with a sense that part of what I might be experiencing in my life is a result of things that I have done. We recognize in First and Second Samuel, the life of David is not a spotless life. And the life of David is the life of a king who is a sinner in need of God, who needs the grace and mercy of God, but does not deserve it. The whole notion of deserved mercy or earned favor seems to be a contradiction in terms. And that's true. He says, be gracious to me in verse 2. That's what he wants. For I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. It seems that David is not merely experiencing some internal conflict. or, Or some kind of emotional and mental upheaval. But even... His very bones and cry for healing could suggest that physical affliction is part of what he is facing. We get this language because he speaks of languishing in verse 2 and cries for healing in verse 2. His bones are troubled. Evoking in our minds specifically the frame of the body. And we know that in the Old and New Testaments... That one of the consequences that can happen in rebellion against God is not only spiritual consequences, but affliction. We recognize that Job's friends are wrong. We cannot look at someone in some kind of physical, tumultuous state and say, what have you done in sinning against God that brought this about? We can't reason from effect to cause, but we can be aware that in our rebellion against God, we can bring things upon ourselves that in our folly is a sowing that leads to reaping. And he's praying for God to be gracious because he feels like he's languishing and his bones are troubled. Maybe David feels on the very brink of the grave itself. His bones are troubled. He's crying for healing. What great distress he must be in. And in verse 3 he says, My soul also is greatly troubled. Withering away, inwardly and outwardly, David is in a mess. My soul is greatly troubled. This is not a small problem. David doesn't look at his situation and he says, you know what? I think I've got this. think I can manage what's going on. David senses that in his situation he's beyond human help. His soul is greatly troubled. His body is languishing. He says, you, oh Lord. But then he doesn't seem to complete the thought. He just says... How long? I wonder how many prayers we've begun that we didn't complete because we didn't quite know how to finish the sentence. Well, what quite to ask for after we said certain things, and then we just say, Lord, how long? And then one of the most common prayers that you see the agonizing saints in the Bible praying is, How long, O Lord? How much longer? It's a sense of things aren't the way they ought to be. And it's a cry to God because we know things that the way they are are not the way they will be. And by the grace of God, we know His power and sovereignty and authority over all things. It establishes the reason we can come and say, how long? We don't say how long in unbelief. We cry how long knowing that God will bring to pass all His purposes and promises. And the evil one will not prevail against His church. The most common psalm in the book of Psalms is lament. Well, oh, there's something quite instructive about that then. Because we recognize that so much of our life as we age and as we build relationships and as we face loss and griefs, we recognize how much there is to lament about. We don't see this life as maybe worthy of a few lamentations here and there. Life is challenging. Hardships abound. Inwardly and outwardly, David is in distress. He is facing intensity within his heart. And outwardly, he is languishing. His soul is troubled. And his bones are troubled as well. In verses 4 and 5, here's his plea for deliverance. Because he's in quite a state, isn't he? Turn, O Lord, in verses 4 and 5. This is his plea for deliverance. And we know it's not even subtle. Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. He gets right to the point. There's no no avoiding what he is asking for. Turn and deliver. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Turn here means turn in deliverance, not turn with anger. He doesn't want the Lord to rebuke him in anger or discipline in wrath in verse 1. He's asking that when the Lord turns, that he would turn to David and attend to him with rescuing grace. And it's the very thing we don't deserve. It's the very thing God is so faithful to give. We are here this morning on February 19th as a result of God's preserving grace. Had he treated us according to how our abundant sins deserve, none of us would be seeing each other today. We are here on this morning because God is gracious and it has nothing to do with something we have merited. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. It's the language of being snatched out of something. David is surrounded, if you will, inwardly. And outwardly his bones are troubled. He's in a situation that's like quicksand and he can't get himself out. You're in a situation this morning spiritually and maybe you feel even circumstantially where we recognize we need more than human help friends. We need God who delivers his people and David says, turn, deliver my life, save me. He's calling for nothing less than the rescuing, merciful act of God's hand. God had brought Israel out of of Egypt. He saved them. He delivered them. David is praying for his own exodus. For his own personal redemption. Oh God, would you do this work in me? Save me for the sake of... Well, there at the end of verse 4, I wonder how you might fill in the blank if we had different options. What if David had said, save me for the sake of my future... You know, I've got got plans. So save me, Lord. Deliver me for the sake of my future. Or deliver me for the sake of my children. We could also remember David as king. Save me for the sake of my kingdom. We wouldn't have been surprised if David said any of those things. But it is interesting what David grounds the plea in. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Steadfast love is covenant language. God's covenant mercy. God has made promises. He's committed to His people. David is one in relationship with God. And covenant promises would be kept by God. Covenant promises being kept show God's faithfulness. It shows his trustworthiness. It demonstrates his supremacy where others would seek to overturn God's purposes. God's covenant faithfulness shows God's might. And it shows his glory over against the false idols of the nations and the vain plots of the peoples. I think we could paraphrase it this way. David is saying, God, for your glory, save me. For your steadfast love, that your mercy and your covenant faithfulness might be known. God, for the greatest of the possible ends there are, do this work. For your glory. It's a great way to pray. That God would do what he would do ultimately for what would bring glory and the display of his covenant faithfulness and mercy among the nations. And David here is the king of Israel praying for deliverance. Here's the king of Israel, the whole land of Canaan, under his jurisdiction at a human level, and he feels like his bones are languishing and God alone can help. David explains in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you, in Sheol who will give you praise. I want to make some very specific comments about this verse to hopefully ally any concerns that this verse might raise. If someone read verse 5, We'd understand that this question could trouble us. In death, no remembrance of you. Wait a second. What about what's beyond death and the saints that have gone afterward? In Sheol, who will give you praise? Well, what about the the saints who have gone before us? David has something very specific in mind. He's talking about here... Earthly remembrance of God's works and wonders, which is what remembrance would be. They would gather uh, to remember corporately in their various feasts of Israel. The individual Israelites could reflect on many things to remember. These were the earthly works of God remembered by his earthly people. The Psalms do have a view of life after death. Even in, in the Psalms, the psalmist will say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we know that the psalmists, in multiple psalms to come, anticipate deliverance from death itself. This here is a very specific comment from an earthly perspective. He's saying, Lord, I want to go on praising you in this life. I want to continue remembering in this life what you've done. So if you will save me by your covenant mercies then I will continue proclaiming and remembering, and I will have one additional thing to thank you for, for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Because if I die, then I can't be here on earth to remember. I can't do what would provoke remembrance, and that is think on your wonders in this earthly life. In Sheol, who who will give you praise? It's again a question about the earthly perspective. Who will give you praise if they have died and are no longer on the earth? They are no longer on earth to praise. David, in this question, is saying, Lord, spare me from death. Which must mean he feels quite under threat. Even to use the word in verse 5, in death. It must tell us that his inner turmoil of soul and his outward languishing in his bones is to such a degree that David is conceiving of the possibility that he won't make it. It's a grim circumstance indeed. And we know the emotional toil that this has taken on him in verses 6 and 7. Look at his description of his heart's distress. Here's what he writes in verses 6 and 7 about what his heart is undergoing. I am weary with my moaning. Have you ever been more worn down after what was already wearing you down because you were processing it, weeping in light of it, emotionally trying to handle it, and you felt like what was already wearisome only compounded your state of weariness? The moaning here is the moaning of grief. It's the moaning of agony. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Think of the excessive language that's used there. Flooding the bed with tears. Drenching the couch with weeping. This is of such a scale that we realize David didn't just have a couple bad days. Okay, That's not what this is. David is experiencing something in his life, inwardly and outwardly, where he, he is being undone. He's not sure if he is going to make it. And if you were to go to David's pillow, you could wring it out and all the tears would be squeezed. Here you have someone whose very bed is flooded with tears. The picture of flooding. This is demonstrating such agony and distress. He says in verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. The image of the eye is used here because of the weeping. Verse 6, he's weeping and crying, right? Well, tears come from the eye. And he says, my eye is wasting away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This communicates to us, I think, that David is a, a weeping king. Jeremiah can rightly be described a weeping prophet in the book of Jeremiah. Well, in the Psalms, David is a weeping king. David is a weeping king who is not averse to difficult circumstances and he's not indifferent to the hardships that come his way. He can easily cry out to God, I am overcome by everything I am facing. He is not deluded. David does not think he is God, but he knows God is God and he knows God is faithful and he knows God has power David doesn't have and God has purposes David doesn't know. So he knows I can always turn to God who would welcome us with all our sorrows. He is beyond human rescue here. He doesn't say, oh Lord, I'm coming to you to just report what's going on. But I, I have my resources after all. I'm king. And my reputation and my military might and my many chariots and spears. God, this looks, this looks like a challenge, but i faced him before. I remember Goliath, right? I had that sling and that stone. And, and I'll be fine. David would no doubt remember all of his victories, even as a young man over animal, and even the victory over Goliath were all done by the hand of the Lord at work in David's life. David's life, his victories are not a testimony to David's greatness. The victories of David are a testimony to God's greatness in the life of David. He says, My eye grows weak because of all my foes. Foes. That word comes out of nowhere. In the Psalms so far. We've heard David talk about his languishing bones. We've heard him talk about his troubled soul. And now we realize the situation is even worse than we imagined. His circumstances are not just physical affliction or inner turmoil. He has enemies. No surprise there. He is the king of Israel. It's not like a leader in the nation that was the Israelite nation. Would be without opposition. David here says... My foes. All my foes. Plural. The presence of enemies. This, is, uh, this could be the, the kind of uh, experience that's like the saying, when it rains, it pours. And here David is already experiencing inner difficulty. And then add to that physical affliction. And then add to that more circumstances that include foes. Everyone can resonate With the idea that you were already going through one thing. And then the other shoe drops. And then more compounds on this. And you think how much more mounting sorrow is my human heart going to have to face. Before I just die from it. David feels like he is wasting away under grief. Surrounded by what he cannot overcome. But then the psalm takes a turn. The psalm takes a turn. And in verses 8 to 10, he calls for his evildoers to depart. And what I think we can imply here from the turn in verses 8 to 10 is that in turning to the Lord and in calling out to God, while not all of David's circumstances have been resolved, his strength and hope has been renewed. And that is what the struggle is for. The struggle of persevering and looking to God. Because when we are in pain, and when inwardly and outwardly and circumstantially around us we feel overwhelmed and overcome it is easy to lose focus and perspective. It's like when you hit your thumb with a nail. All you feel in that moment is that throbbing pain right there in that small part of your hand. And, and yet at the same time, by analogy the sufferings of this life can feel so all-consuming that I can't see anything else, focus on anything else, hear anything else because the life's throbbing experience is so overwhelming that's all in front of me and David knows I must turn to God because all he is focusing on here and all he is overcome by this is not going to be what helps him he must turn to God his help he must turn to God his refuge other people might say David why are you doing that Even David himself might wonder, will this even do any good? And yet in this psalm, what we notice is that David is surrounded here and in verses 8 to 10 begins to now speak differently. Because as we turn our heart to God and as we remind ourselves about the glory of God and the promises of God and the truth of God, it does something to our hearts. It orients us and it stabilizes us. And the people of God are always a praying people from the beginning of the Bible to the end because they know God who welcomes them in His presence. And He says to the evildoers in verses 8-10, through 10, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. God hears Every tear, your tears, make sounds that God hears. He is not numb to them. He hears them. God has heard the sound of my weeping. What kind of attentiveness is this? How hard must it be for us to hear the fall of a tear? You know, you might hear somebody crying where you, where you hear the sounds that they're making, Here God has heard the sound of the weeping where every tear is known by God. David's cries are heard by God most high. Nobody else might know the extent of David's pain. God knows and David takes solace in that because God loves David. God is faithful to David. God will not fail david all of god's promises to david will come true so even if nothing else is going david's way david can look unto god his everlasting refuge he says in verse 9 the lord has heard my plea the lord accepts my prayer he's just said in verse 9 what he ended with in verse 8 right in verse 8 he says the lord has heard the sound of my weeping and then he just says it two more times He's just basking in this glorious knowledge that he is someone who comes to God and his words are heard by God. His weeping is known by God and he wants his enemies to know that. The enemies of God need to know that God hears his people and that's bad news for the enemies of God. All the tears of God's people, all the weeping and agonies of God's people surrounded by the enemies of God. God hears the weeping of his people. His enemies should tremble in light of that fact. This is a statement of confidence in David, boldness in David. He can look to his present and future with a more peaceful mind because God is the unchanging God. His hope can be renewed in God even if the situation doesn't fully resolve. The faithfulness of God and His steadfast love are a comfort to David. And what we must do, friends, is spend time as believers thinking on what God is like according to His Word. David knows what God is like. He knows the faithfulness of God and the character of God. The doctrine of God is not something that's just for mental exercises as we try to gain information as Christians. We want to think about what God is like because who God is is relevant in the most practical details of our life. David says, I'm comforted now. God has heard my plea. I know what God is like. He's the God who hears the prayers of His people and answers. God's enemies will not have the last word. David believes this. He knows this. He prays in light of that. Here's what he says in verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. David believes things are going to change. His foes right now seem to have the upper hand, but God's hand is stronger than theirs. The enemies shall face shame. Right now they might bask in their cleverness and in their plots against David. When all is said and done, it will not be David any longer who is greatly troubled. It says here in chapter 6 and in verse 3, My soul is greatly troubled. David says, My enemies will be greatly troubled. My enemies will be greatly troubled. When all is said and done, and God alone is the one who brings to account all the nations of the earth... Shame shall be their future. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David knows that God will bring the righteous indignation of His holy wrath upon the enemies of God. David right now feels like he's languishing. They will languish under the wrath of God. He's praying for God's graciousness and mercy. His enemies will face the shame of their sin and transgression. They shall turn back And be put to shame. It makes me think of Genesis 19. When Lot's wife should have just kept going. But she turned back. And she turned back and she perished. They will be put to shame in a moment turning back. We know as believers the words of David in Psalm 6 are not limited to him. Believers throughout the centuries following God know that we are afflicted body and soul. Christ followers have faced external enemies time and time again who threaten their very lives. If you were to drain all the oceans, you could fill the void with the tears of the saints that have been cried throughout the centuries on their beds and couches and on the shoulders of their fellow brothers and sisters. We can say, we can say, can't we? With David, the words of verse 8, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. You can be confident of that in every prayer that you pray. He has heard the sound of my weeping. And we know that as the Bible testifies and the saints of old can testify like a cloud of witnesses that the faithfulness of the Lord is true and it undergirds all of our hope in Him. Our hope in God is not in vain. Consider the earthly ministry of Jesus. How not even the incarnate Son of God would escape earthly hardships and trials. The suffering king in Psalm 6. Who does he point to? But our suffering king in the gospels. The life and ministry of the one who would be Jesus of Nazareth. David says in Psalm 6 verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. I just want you to hear the words of Jesus. In John 12 verse 27, Jesus says my soul is troubled. Here he is the one greater than David. The descendant of David, the one to inherit the nations, the one who would rule with a scepter and rod of iron. Who says in John 12, 27, My soul is troubled? Think later about the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark's gospel, we're told in Mark 14:34, Jesus says, My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Oh, yes, Jesus experienced in His earthly life, the imminence and the nearness of griefs and sorrows. We learn in the light of Isaiah 52 and 53, He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's no stranger to grief. He comes to be the man of griefs and the man of sorrows. But I want you to listen to what the one greater than David would one day say. Jesus speaks about a time when all would come before Him. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks the words... Psalm 6 verse 8. David was in a circumstance where he said depart from me you workers of evil and I need you to know that Jesus the one greater than David will say to all of the wicked in Matthew 7:23, I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. This is the coming king who at his return will bring all things to rights. And the nations will be held to account. And the wicked will face condemnation. And God's people who have taken refuge in Christ Jesus now, they will know him as their everlasting refuge age upon age and end without end. We should turn from our sin. These nations, these peoples, these workers of evil in Psalm 6 8, they should cease doing evil. If they are doing evil against the anointed one, then they need to be reminded of Psalm 2. They should tremble before the anointed one, they should kiss the son lest he be angry. All of that language from Psalm 2 is a warning to those who would pursue their rebellion and their sin. And then in a wholehearted commitment to it, they would be workers of evil. They would face the judgment of God. We should turn from evil. We should repent. Psalm 6 was used in church history as one of several psalms called penitential psalms. All connected to the idea of repentance. Repentance. That here, David is aware that even within his own life, he doesn't desire the rebuke and discipline of God. He's casting himself upon the mercy of God that God would sustain him. And not only would David need to turn from sin, any of these workers of evil should turn from sin. This would not be the only psalm in the book of Psalms where there seems to be a need for workers of evil to stop doing evil. Or for David to cry out for mercy given what he may have already been doing. When you recognize... What we have done as sinners in our commitment to our wickedness, in our thoughts, words, and deeds, we recognize the fork in the road whenever the gospel is preached. Will we continue steadfastly in a way of rebellion and path of folly? Or will we realize that we right now have seen in this Lord's Day morning the hand of God extending to us, come you sinner, come to me and I will give you rest. You want to hear the words, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not the words, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. (sighs) We should turn from sin and flee to Christ. We should cry out to God for mercy. Our prayer, be gracious to me, O Lord. Oh, we should pray that. Rebuke me not in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Call out for deliverance. Save my life, O God. What about all of our tears? God hears the sound of our weeping. And the Bible addresses those tears as well. In Revelation 21, it t- says in verse 4, that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We are living in the time of what will one day be called the former things. These are the present things to us now. It's not yet passed away. But it will This too shall pass in the most incredible way imaginable. These days, these things will one day be the former things. These ways under the sun and the wickedness and corruption of this life. Our inward and outward languishing and trials. These will be part of the former things. And the God who has heard all of our weeping. Will raise us from the dead. Glorify us in His presence. And in the eternity to come. We will be forever His people. Friend, when you read Psalm 6 today. When we hear David's cries, when we listen to his agonies, we recognize here, David looks at his situation and he says, you know what I need? I need God. I need God. What my enemies need is also God. Because what they are doing will bring about judgment. They will depart under the wrath of God. So deliver my life, David says. And do it, God, for the sake of your glory, for your steadfast love and mercy, for your covenant promises and grace. God, for your great name, will you save me? Friends, let's pray this together. Join me in prayer.